Alaska Teen Media Institute, I'm Zen Rogers. This is Podcast in Place, a series about life on Alaska during the COVID-19 pandemic. As we all know, life during this pandemic has weighed heavily on our individual and collective mental health. For youth, things like isolation, anxiety, and grief have added to an already increasing list of risk factors. And Alaska has long since had some of the highest adolescent suicide rates in the country. So for this episode, we're going to talk about suicide prevention. Our guest is Leah Van Kirk, the Suicide Prevention Program Coordinator for the Alaska Department of Health and Social Services. In her early career, she worked in the field of education, then spent 12 years in social work and child protective services. During this time, she says she saw adults and youth who died by suicide. She learned that with prevention and early intervention, negative health outcomes can be reduced. More than anything, we can intervene and we can respond and we can treat, and that's important. And the overall um, effectiveness of prevention is always best. So the further upstream we can move to promote wellness has a greater effect on long-term health. Atme producer Madison Knudsen spoke with Van Kirk about her work how the pandemic has affected youth mental health and preventative resources, as well as best practices for providing support for people who are struggling with suicidal ideation. They spoke on May 16th, 2022. Could you give us like a little bit of background on what your role is as the Suicide Prevention Program Coordinator? When we think about suicide prevention, we know that it's a public health concern. And we know that in Alaska, Suicide is one of the leading causes of death. And so it's really important that from a statewide and a systems perspective, that we look at preventing suicide. We look at um, intervention and postvention so that we can address the public health issue in our state. And so my role is about engaging partners and identifying best practices in prevention, intervention, and postvention, and then making sure that we have a system that responds to the need to help prevent suicide. I wanted to like ask you kind of what your day-to-day like work schedule has looked like recently. Sure. So I would say the day-to-day work lately has been focused on the implementation of 988, the three-digit suicide prevention and mental health crisis lifeline. So in Alaska, we have a 24-7 crisis call center that can receive calls for from anyone if they just need someone to talk to, if they're in emotional distress, if they're in crisis. And most states have those crisis call centers. And Nationally, we've recognized that mental health is an important, um, an important issue that people are facing, and we need to make sure that there are easily accessible services or easily accessible resources to help guide someone to the specific resources they need. So nationally, 988 will be implemented in July of 2022. And so a lot of my work has been engaging key stakeholders across the state in talking about how we're going to do that in Alaska and and the important pieces um, that we want to include, like our call center being connected to resources in the community if someone needs immediate services, or 
making sure our call center has the resources to share with someone about how they can um, get a behavioral health assessment. So that has been kind of the forefront of my work. Some of the other projects I've been working on is working with the Office of Children's Services and building in a training program for new social workers. Uh, and so one of the pieces that we're implementing into new training for social workers is called Youth Mental Health First Aid. And it's teaching adults how to recognize mental health challenges in youth and then how to guide them to get the most appropriate resources based on their needs. Also how to screen it, um, for suicide. So if a youth is thinking about suicide, directly asking them because we know that that's best practice is just to ask directly and then to stay with someone until you connect them to supports. And so really teaching adults about those best practice ways to recognize and then engage youth um, who, who might be struggling with their mental health. Could you tell us about like how in your experience the pandemic has affected the suicide rates in youth? So interestingly, I think that there has been some myths around suicide rates during the pandemic. And so one thing that I share is that in 2020 in Alaska, we did not see an increase in the number of youth who died by suicide. And, and so that I think is really important just to know that doesn't mean that Alaska still doesn't have high rates of suicide and that we have continued work to do. It absolutely does. We also did see, an, and, and more recently, we did see an increase in the, the number of youth attempting suicide. And so we absolutely have a lot of work to do and we have engaged partners across public health and the Department of Education, the Alaska Mental Health Trust Authority, in order to really target our efforts toward younger youth. And that's similar to a national trend. We're also seeing an increase in the number of girls attempting suicide compared to, compared to boys. So there's certainly, I think, a lot of work. Uh, and going into the pandemic, we knew that you know, Alaska and Alaska's youth was a particularly vulnerable population. Um, prior to the pandemic, Alaska had the highest rate of youth suicide. Um, and, and so I think that there's an amazing amount of work that is happening across our state through, through some of the departments and divisions that I identified, but also through our tribal behavioral health organizations, through our wellness coalitions, through our um, local behavioral health uh, centers. And so I think the work that we have to continue doing is spreading awareness and learning how each one of us individually can recognize when there are risk factors or warning signs and learning how to intervene. So not just on the community or public health level, but suicide prevention belongs to us individually, within our neighborhoods, within our schools, within our communities, and within our state. And so really trying to build that comprehensive approach and all of us taking ownership to, to work on this together. Do you know why people have maybe like thought 
the suicide rates in youth have been like increasing when they've not really increased during the pandemic? You know, a lot of experts have speculated <laughs> about that. So one of the one of the concerns about um, increasing suicide rates were because some of the mitigation efforts for COVID-19 were considered risk factors for suicide. So um, isolation, for instance, um, can be a risk factor or a warning sign. So if someone starts really isolating themselves from friends and family, that can increase risk for them. And so, so I think that was the difficulty and the concern about how the pandemic might impact suicidality was that many of those mitigation strategies um, were risk factors. So another one would be accessing mental health care. So it was harder initially during the pandemic to access mental health care. The amazing thing that's come out of that is that I think we've really increased our telehealth capacity because of that. And so that has um, been a benefit. Another thing we know that happened during the pandemic is that people were uh, utilizing substances more than they were prior to the pandemic. And so increased substance use can also be a risk factor for suicide. So many of the impacts of the pandemic actually created additional risk factors. And so there was concern that that would result in a higher number of suicides. And so it didn't for 2020. We're still waiting on our 2021 data, but it doesn't look like at this point that we've had um, a significant increase, but like I said, we're waiting on the finalization of that data from 2021. Like I said, we do see um, an increase in the youth suicide attempts. And so, and, and specifically that 11 to 14 year old age group. So really making sure that our prevention efforts are targeting younger youth. So youth in middle schools and, and really talking about what young people can do and what families can do and breaking down that stigma and talking about our mental health, recognizing that mental health challenges are real, they're common, they're treatable, and that it's okay to ask for help. And I think I wanna highlight something really amazing about our youth and young adults today. And that is, I believe they have really broken down so much stigma related to talking about mental health because we know our youth and young adults are experiencing challenges with their mental health related to COVID. And even prior to that with the um, high utilization of social media and how that impacts people. And so I think we have an amazing strength in our youth today to be able to talk about um, really challenging things that other generations I don't think have, have done as well. So I think we have an amazing, amazing youth and young adult population who addresses pretty hard things pretty insightfully. Absolutely. Speaking about like stigmatization, what does your organization do specifically to address the maybe more cultural stigmas around mental health and suicide? Because we do have social media, you know, just like social stigmas, but then also we have cultural stigmas for mental illness and suicide. I think I would talk about that in a couple different ways. And what I would say is that one really important component of human interaction is connection. So social connection and connectedness is a powerful buffer to stress and it's a source of well-being. 
And so oftentimes through social media, through the busyness in our lives, we don't slow down enough to really focus on quality in-person time with other people. And so when we talk about, for instance, social media, sometimes that can be a way to connect. And especially during the pandemic when we didn't have ways to connect in person. And what I generally try to say is, is your engagement in social media taking away from other healthy parts um, of, of living and of your well-being? So for instance, are you getting outside? Are you engaging in physical activity? Are you spending in-person time with friends? Are you involved in activities? And are you getting enough sleep? Are you eating healthy? And if engagement in social media or screen time takes away from that, then that might be a time to assess, is this healthy for me? Also like paying attention to how social media might be impacting you. So for instance, if you feel higher amounts of anxiety or stress after reading, you know, information about COVID that is really scary or, or other things that are causing anxiety or stress, maybe identifying, I'm not going to read anything about COVID for a week on social media. And I'm going to protect myself in that way because I know it has a negative impact on me. Then I think the second thing that you asked was um, stigma surrounding um, culture and suicide. And, and what I think is really important is that, that risk factors are really um, based on uh, things that have impacted a person. And so Alaska Native culture is beautiful and healthy and connected to land and, and so grounded in spirituality. And culture is protective. Being connected to one's culture is a protective factor. And I, and I agree with you, there is stigma. Um, so Dr. Cody Chip actually from ANTHC, I think said this beautifully and, and helped me learn how to say this, which is risk factors for suicide are because of um, many things. For instance, social determinants of health, um, health equity, and, and access to services when you need it. And so I think that what's really important is that we really focus on risk factors and not identifying things like um, someone's race or, or gender. We know risk, there are risk factors that impact those things, but really identifying what's protective and what can be addressed and what resources there are helps reduce that stigma. Yeah, well, thank you for um, educating me on that. And then you mentioned social media and how that can like really lead people to exhibit like risk factors. Has the like pandemic affected your work trying to implement strategies in noticing like social media and how it affects mental health? So I would say that transitioning to Zoom platforms was a challenge, right? So when you're on video, for some reason, when we're, when we're on camera, we don't feel like we can take a drink of our water or that we can eat. And, but those are natural things that we would do in a meeting, potentially, if we were at a meeting table, sometimes people bring snacks. And so that fatigue of being on camera or on screen for many hours a day definitely has had an impact. And so what I think has been good is that as we've transitioned to 
teleworking or many Zoom meetings that really paying attention um, to our own mental health um, and being able to talk about that, I think has been incredibly helpful. And I think it's well received because we all feel it. And I think it's been a great way to be able to talk about mental health or even just recognize this is impacting me and I need to take a break. So I'm gonna turn my camera off there for this meeting. I also think that there have been some amazing benefits to telehealth and, and Zoom that the pandemic kind of created. And, and that is, for instance, when engaging in um, the 988 initiative. A lot of times we spend, we have to travel to many different areas to get messages out and to communicate about different initiatives. And I think that's really valuable because of the networking that happens, because of the conversations that happen after a meeting and the relationships that you build. Um, and I also think there has been a benefit to engaging a wide variety of people from across the state because we are operating um, in this telework environment. And so, you know, I think with everything, we have to be mindful of um, making sure that we're balancing um, telework and in-person work as we come out of the pandemic. And, and so I think there's, there's value to both and making sure that we are um, trying to utilize the strengths of both types of work, I think is the healthiest approach to, to working um, kind of in this hybrid environment that we are now. You said that kind of we're, we're coming out of the pandemic now and we're trying to balance the kind of media aspect of our lives and the, you know, in-person aspect of our lives. Do you think that like the change in how much social media and like online schooling we use can like uh, affect youths struggling with uh, mental health issues? Yeah, so I wanna carefully approach your question. Um, prior to the pandemic, there has been research that shows when youth spend three or more hours on social media that we see higher rates of anxiety and depression. And so I think there is much more research that needs to be done and media and screen time is changing faster than we can do that research. But I think what suicide prevention experts have been able to say is when screen time or social media takes away from the other healthy things that we know are good for us, then that's where we see some of the impacts um, of social media. So we know that a protective factor for youth suicide is problem-solving skills. Well, how do we develop problem-solving skills? We develop that through interactions with friends, with family, with our um, youth groups, with our engagement in other activities and interacting with people and having healthy adults around us to help teach, right? And so if you're decreasing that amount of in-person contact and interaction, you're not building some of the really important protective factors that you need to promote your own well-being. And so, you know, it's really, I think, about balance. Um, and then additionally, you know, we also know that oftentimes on social media, there can be things like bullying, and then also um, it can impact self-esteem and especially girls. 
And right now what we have seen is an increase in suicide attempts, mostly um, by girls. And so I have actually met with some high school students from West High School. They were a part of a presentation that I did. And they were amazing and really talked about all of the things that research has indicated about some of the negative impacts, some of the positive impacts, and really understanding that what we see on social media is a picture. It's not um, a holistic picture of someone's life or their personality or their strengths or their challenges. And so oftentimes that can be deceiving and, and youth can feel like, oh, I should be like that, or I'm not as good as them. And so really making sure that if that's impacting you as a youth or a young adult, or even an adult, that we manage that and step away from that and engage in, in real life interaction with, with people, because that's, that's so important in the development of our self-esteem, in um, feeling good and confident about who we are and just promoting that, um, that wellness and, and stable mental health. And so, you know, I think social media is very valuable to youth as well. And I, I have seen young adults tell me things like, I have managed my apps on my phone. I'm, you know, putting my phone on do not disturb before I go to sleep or at 7 p.m. I'm making sure that when my friends, you know, come over, we're putting our phones down if we're at the table having dinner. And so I think it's really amazing because our youth and young adults are identifying strategies to help manage this. And when youth and young adults um, implement those things because they understand their importance, we see them um, being healthy and, and really modeling um, for others what they can do to address the impact of social media in their lives. Yeah, absolutely. I've definitely noticed how social media can be good, but it can also be damaging and how like I've been affected by social media. I find myself sometimes picking up my phone and just getting on social media out of habit and kind of realizing it's not healthy. So I think, yeah, a lot of my friends and a lot of youth are realizing that now. We'll be right back. If you or someone you know is struggling with their mental health, you can call the Alaska Care Line. It's free and confidential, and they listen to all callers without judgment. You can reach them at 1-877-266-4357 or visit their website, carelinealaska.com for more information. In the episode description, you will find additional resources, including the ones mentioned in the discussion you're listening to. Now, back to Madison's interview with Leah Van Kirk. Do you have any like stories that represent youth suicide in Alaska during the pandemic? Rather than sharing one story, this is what I would share that there is hope and that if someone is thinking about suicide, that doesn't mean that we can't intervene and, and connect them to resources that will help them. There's definitely, I think, several myths around suicide. And that is if somebody is thinking about dying by suicide, that that's what they're going to do. And, and what we know is that nine out of 10 people who do attempt suicide and survive 
go on to live. And that is really powerful and really important. And I think instills hope and our work and our efforts to recognize suicidality in our friends and our family and to connect them to the resources they need will make a difference. And so what I try to share in, in all of my messaging when I talk about suicide prevention is that individually and collaboratively together, we can make a difference, but it's not intuitive. We don't naturally know what to do. And so learning about how to recognize um, signs or risk factors or warning signs is important. Knowing what to do and feeling confident about what to do if you are talking to a friend and need to ask them and they respond yes. Knowing what to do and feeling okay about that is important. And then last but not least, I would say one really important thing that is not intuitive um, that we know saves lives is protecting our homes and making our homes safe when someone might be experiencing mental health challenges. And that is making sure there aren't any accessible means. So for instance, if there are firearms in a home and someone is struggling with mental health or maybe even just struggling with um, a, a relationship breakup and they're really struggling to cope or anxiety or um, some other really significant mental health concerns, what research shows us is it's best practice to temporarily remove firearms from the home um, and, and store them somewhere else. Because what we know is oftentimes when someone is contemplating suicide, it's very short term from the time they make a decision to attempt suicide and to when they actually act. And so putting that time between someone and a means can save a life. And so, for instance, what that means individually is that if someone comes to me, say my friend comes to me and says, you know, my daughter is really struggling with uh, a breakup right now and she, you know, she won't get out of bed. She's not hanging out with friends. I'm really concerned about her. Then it's my role because of what I know and what I've learned about suicide prevention to say, that sounds really hard. And I know one thing that can help protect your family and her right now is that if you store any firearms out of your home while she's getting through this time. And that's not intuitive for us to say to each other, even in some of our closest friendships. And I'll always remember uh, the words of a high school student when I when someone asked her, like, are you afraid that somebody's going to be mad at you because, you know, because you shared that they're, they're at risk with an adult that could help them. And she said, I would rather see my friend tomorrow. And so that motivates me to make sure that I address risk. And so, you know, having the courage to say some things sometimes that might be um, uncomfortable or feel challenging um, to to support each other is absolutely the place where we can come together and do that. And I share that example because most of, um, most of the people who die by suicide use a firearm. And, and when we can encourage each other to, to remove firearms from a home, if there's a time of, of risk or, or mental health challenge, that decreases the likeliness of someone dying by suicide. So I hope that's 
helpful. Yes, it definitely is helpful. Thank you for sharing that. That certainly is something I may not have thought of, and I'm glad you shared it so that other people can know as well. Do you have any like first steps uh, someone who is personally um, experiencing suicidal ideation should take to prevent anything from happening or at least get help? Yeah, I mean, one of the most important things to do is to reach out for help, right? So that could be reaching out to your primary care provider, to your behavioral health provider, or calling the care line. So we have our statewide crisis call center, and that's absolutely um, the right place to call if you're thinking about suicide. And they can connect you to resources, they can help develop a safety plan, they will assess where you're at in terms of your ideation and really help guide someone through getting connected to the resources that they need. Um, and so there, there's a lot of great online resources and I could share some of those with you if you um, needed them. But I think that's just a really important piece is making sure that we reach out for help when we're feeling that way. And, and right initially, when, if we start feeling that way, that's an indicator that we need to reach out and get some help before we get to that place of crisis. And, and it's surprising. Um, I think sometimes people feel shame or embarrassment um, when they're thinking about suicide. And we want to break down that stigma and, and let people know that when we reach out for help, that is very treatable. Suicidal ideation is very treatable and it's usually episodic. So people might struggle with um, suicidal ideation um, during their lifetime, but there's also many people who um, struggle with more of an episodic uh, suicidal crisis. And so reaching out for help, getting connected to what you need can, can make all of the difference. And we have you know, many amazing providers in our state who are who absolutely you know, are there to respond and to treat people who might be experiencing that. Yeah, thank you for sharing that information. And then additionally, you did talk about that experience of sharing that someone may be experiencing suicidal ideation, even if they don't you know, necessarily want you to because you wanna protect this person. But how do you get someone who is suicidal or who has suicidal ideation to seek help? There's a lot of guidance on talking to someone. Indian Health Service has some great resources. So does NAMI for how to begin the conversation to talk to someone who might be experiencing thoughts of suicide. And, you know, one of the key things that we communicate is that we need to ask directly about suicide and asking it in such a way um, that it's not blaming, it's not suggesting that they're not thinking about that, but just very directly that can be answered in yes or no. So are you thinking of killing yourself or are you thinking about ending your life? And then talk openly with someone if they do answer with a yes. And um, validate the person's experience, their feelings. And, and I think most importantly, letting them know that judgment isn't being passed, that help is available. 
And, and then also I think a key part of that is getting them connected to resources and not leaving a person alone until you make that connection with resources. And you know, like that high school student shared, my friend might be upset with me, but at least I know that they're gonna be connected to resources and, and to someone who can get them the help that they need. Absolutely, yeah, I've heard a lot of people who have you know, had someone come up to them and tell them that they've been having suicidal like ideations uh-huh. and been feeling that way and they haven't been able to like respond to them or they've been caught off guard. And so I think, yeah, definitely those practices are very helpful um, to know about so that you can make sure that person is safe. So thank you for sharing that. Madison, there's one thing I wanted to add to what you just said. Um, So one training that I think really helps train other youth and young adults about how to respond is called teen mental health first aid. Because we do know that peers usually share with other peers first. And so we wanna make sure to educate peers on how to respond because that can be really scary. And, and, uh, and it's very often for youth, young adults, adults to not know how to respond to that because it can be very uncomfortable. And so teen mental health first aid is specifically for high school students and it teaches them how to respond if one of their friends indicates that they're thinking about suicide in a best practice way, in a way that doesn't promise secrecy, doesn't leave the person alone, reassures the person and acknowledges that what they're feeling um, is serious um, and and that we can talk openly about this and get you the help that that you need. so they're doing that in a couple different areas in the state and it's been excellent and youth and young adults feel really empowered um, when they engage in this training. And that's what we want. We want people to feel confident and empowered to get the help to people they need and know that that help makes a difference. Earlier, we discussed a bit about the barriers, um, but maybe could you expand a little bit on uh, what are the barriers keeping people from seeking mental health care in Alaska right now? Some of the barriers are that are stigma. So people are um, embarrassed. They maybe have had negative experiences when they've reached out before. They don't want people to know that they're struggling. Maybe they think they can handle it on their own and maybe they don't need help. So so those are some barriers. Um, Also barriers would be access to care. Um, Barriers could also be um, a high amount, uh, maybe a long wait time. So sometimes mental health providers in different areas of the state um, might not have availability. There might be wait lists. Um, I think, you know, there are different barriers based on, on, on where you're at. And, and I think sometimes um, barriers could also be um, following up with care. So identifying needs and then um, not being able to get connected to follow-up services. So many, many barriers. And that is, you know, part of my role is from a systems approach, really working on breaking down some of those barriers so that people can seamlessly utilize our continuum of care to support their mental health needs. And have those barriers that you discussed become more complicated due to the pandemic? 
No, I think I automatically want to say yes, but I, I think one of the benefits that we have seen is in, in the availability of telehealth. And I think that has made care more accessible to people. And that's been something that is of high value when people are seeking out mental health services. So I actually think that nationally, we're talking about mental health more because we know that there have been mental health impacts as a result of the pandemic. So do I feel like these barriers continue to be more challenging because of the impacts of the pandemic? Yes, but I think it is helping us bring it to the forefront of what we are targeting, what systems are being funded, and how we're approaching the system of crisis care, of mental health care. So, you know, I think sometimes there's barriers and, um, and positive things that result from, from difficult times. And I think we're really trying to recognize what was helpful and continue to work on some of the barriers. Yeah. Um, and then you discussed like telehealth and all the programs that you help facilitate. But I wanted to know what suicide prevention program or like programs in Alaska have been the most effective in your opinion? Hmm. I think that if we talk about suicide prevention specifically, so maybe not intervention, so just prevention, I think that promoting protective factors in youth is incredibly important. So when we work on um, programs that help build the number of adult connections in, in a youth's life, that helps build protective factors that buffer from other suicide risk factors. When we promote connectedness, when we promote programs that support a youth feeling like they matter in their community, when we engage um, youth in extracurricular and after-school activities, those are the things that I see having the largest impact. So having adults in, in their lives um, engaged in physical activity, extracurricular activities, feeling like they matter to their community um, are really important protective factors. Um, I think that accessibility to mental health care when they need it is absolutely important and, um, and a protective factor as well. I think building awareness through um, suicide awareness uh, programs so that people in our community know how to respond if someone is struggling is incredibly important. And that's done through many, many different um, evidence-based trainings such as um, QPR, Question, Persuade and Refer, or um, Youth Mental Health First Aid, or Mental Health First Aid, or Safe Talk. So a lot of um, named programs, but I think the key is suicide awareness and education about how to assist someone. Um, and then also building protective factors and reducing risk factors are some of the most effective strategies that I see um, in helping reduce um, youth suicide. Yeah, I like the focus on specifically what it does to help youth and how it directly affects youth. Cause I think that's, that's the really, that's the key factor. I will add one more thing. And I talked a little bit about it before which was teen mental health first aid but there's also you are not alone programs in high schools. 
And that's teaching peers what to do when they know someone is at risk or if they're at risk. And I think that is incredibly powerful because youth voice, youth leaders, and confidence in knowing how to respond to mental health concerns is incredibly valuable. So I would absolutely highlight um, educating, empowering, and engaging youth in preventing suicide and, and knowing what to do when someone needs help is absolutely one of the most powerful things that we can do. Mm-hmm. I, I like that. Uh, you mentioned that Alaska has one of like the highest suicide rates in the country, but can you speak on the level of mental health resources the state has in comparison to the need? So one of the things we're working on is building up um, provider training for treating suicidality specifically. And so what we know and what we've learned through research is that we might be able to treat depression and we might be able to treat anxiety or or other mental health um, challenges, diagnoses that people are experiencing. But what we know works most effectively with preventing suicide is treating suicidality specifically. So we have many providers across the state who offer a variety of of different types of treatment resources. And I can refer you to a resource where people might be able to access that if you wanted to share that in, in resource information. But one way that we are really trying to work on suicide prevention is making sure all of our providers, you know, have the tools in their toolboxes to be able to treat suicidality specifically. And so there's certain treatment frameworks um, that we know through evidence-based practices are effective to reduce um, suicidal ideation. And so not only, you know, training the general public and, and people working with youth on how to respond and get help, but then also making sure our providers feel confident about um, giving that help when when someone comes to them who's experiencing suicidality. Speaking more on like providers and after care and getting people the help they need, from what I've read recently, for new patients to schedule like an appointment, the wait time could be up to two months. So how does this affect a person trying to schedule the appointment when they can't get the help they need when they need it? I think that's absolutely a challenge that we face in Alaska. And I think it depends on on the providers that we're reaching out to. So, you know, for instance, I know there's some organizations, behavioral health organizations for youth specifically, you know, that are really proud of the fact that they don't have a wait list because we do know that when people need access to resources, they need it when they need it. And that having those resources available at the time is is valuable in making sure that they don't get to that crisis point. So, you know, I think around the state, there's different different areas and different um, different resources. There may be wait lists in some areas and some areas not. And what I would say is that I do know that some organizations um, offer checking in with someone while they're on a wait list. Um, and then I also want to, um, promote our Alaska care line because 
um, many people have utilized the Alaska Care Line when they need someone to talk to and maybe while they're waiting um, for an assessment or outpatient treatment services. And so, you know, really making sure that we are um, bridging that gap by utilizing some of the resources that we do have. Um, I think it's a challenge. I think it's something that nationally, you know, we're working on. There's a very significant workforce shortage in the behavioral health field on a national level. And so, you know, I think it's a, not only a state systems issue, but a national systems issue that we are working on um, addressing and, and, and supporting uh, the development of our workforce. We did talk about kind of like personal stories before it's been positive, but do you have any like kind of final stories about youth dealing with suicide in Alaska that give you hope? I think when I hear, I've heard many voices of youth and what youth share is that when people reach out to them in their times of need, that when they get help, um, they can see through it and their personal experiences can um, provide hope to others. And so what I wanna say is, you know, if someone is experiencing um, mental health challenges, that um, reaching out to them, providing connection to resources and help can make a difference. And that if you've been someone who has recovered from a mental health challenge, think about sharing your story and providing hope to others who might be walking that right now. In Alaska, many of us have lost loved ones to suicide. Um, I've lost a, fa a family friend to suicide. And so when we talk about this, almost all of us can think of um, that someone. And so I guess I would say, um, I wanna honor people's stories because I want them to share their stories. But I would say, think about how suicide might have touched you in your life and what you can do to make a difference moving forward. Absolutely. Well, thank you for uh, joining me and for just providing some great information on um, your services and um, especially the care line and for sharing all you did today. So thank you. Yeah, you're welcome, Madison. I appreciate talking to you. I appreciate you bringing awareness to this really important topic in Alaska. That was At Me producer Madison Knutson speaking with Leah Van Kirk, the Suicide Prevention Program Coordinator for the Alaska Department of Health and Social Services. You've been listening to Podcast in Place from Alaska Teen Media Institute. Our show's theme music was composed by Devin Schreckengost, with additional music from Kendrick Whiteman and Tyler Felsen. You can find these stories at alaskateenmedia.org, where we have included resources for youth in partnership with the State of Alaska Division of Behavioral Health. Alaska Teen Media Institute is based in Anchorage, Alaska. We would like to acknowledge the Denina people whose land we work on. Many thanks to supporters of our podcast, including United Way of Anchorage for the Healthy Communities Funding Program and the CDC Foundation Arts and Vaccine Confidence Project. The opinions, findings, and conclusions or recommendations expressed in this podcast are those of our guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of our funders. Thanks to our listeners who contribute to our programs and help us leverage additional funds and grants. If you'd like to support Youth Voices in Alaska and help keep our podcast going, you can support us through Patreon. 
It's a membership platform that makes it easy for you to support creative endeavors like Atme. Just go to patreon.com slash Media. You can also help out by subscribing to, rating, or writing a review of our series on Apple Podcasts. Every little bit helps us get our stories out there. And don't forget to check out our website, alaskateenmedia.org. There you can learn more about what our organization does, discover more youth-produced content, or find out how to get involved. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for all sorts of updates. For Alaska Teen Media Institute, I'm Zen Rogers. Thanks for listening. Stay safe out there. We'll get through this together.